Hello and welcome to Unlearn Now Learn, the survivor-led podcast that explores all things domestic violence. I'm your host, Abby, and on this episode, we're talking about spiritual abuse. So for most of this episode, you're going to hear an interview that I did with Jen, who is going to share her own lived experience with this type of abuse. And she also happens to be my mother, so it definitely makes for an interesting conversation. Um, But this episode is going to be part of a two-part series where you'll hear Jen's story in both. But to start off today, I'm going to give a little bit of background on what we're referring to when we talk about spiritual abuse. So what's really important to say is that spiritual abuse is very broad and it can be a bit difficult to define um, just because there's so much overlap with other forms of abuse Um, and it does fall on a spectrum. So really this is a type of abuse that happens under an organized religion or um, an organized structure usually from the top down, um, and often there's sort of hierarchical structures. So spiritual abuse is the misuse of a position of power, leadership, or influence to further the selfish interests of someone other than the individual who needs help. Sometimes abuse arises out of a doctrinal position, other times because of legitimate personal needs of a leader that are being met by illegitimate means. So, you know, this can take place in an actual organization, but it can also take place in an intimate relationship. And it, again, it it has so much overlap with other types of abuse. So it can be another um, arm of intimate partner violence, child abuse, sexual abuse, economic abuse, anything that is linked to your spiritual beliefs, religious beliefs, a personal faith, and really, you know, any type of abuse that involves some type of scripture, traditions, um, cultural norms, you know, as with the goal of power and control over another person or a group of people. One of the things that makes spiritual abuse so devastating to someone who experiences it is that it involves your personal belief system and your value system. And often this is happening at the hands of someone who identifies themselves as a religious leader or an authority and you end up placing a lot of trust automatically in anyone who identifies themselves that way because it is tied to your beliefs and you know this is something that we believe is good is bigger than us as humans And, you know, this type of trust, when it's violated, it's such a 
deep wound and it's compounded by so many other things because our faith and our beliefs are so personal and usually such a, a meaningful part of who we are when we're um, you know violated using those beliefs or under the guise of those beliefs and our trust is broken it can set us into a downward spiral of questioning everything about ourselves and um, um, make our stance in who we are as people rockier and it puts us in a more vulnerable position to be pressured or um, misled, misguided, manipulated by another person who's in a position of spiritual authority or leadership. And, you know, many people who are abusive seek out positions of authority for that reason. And unfortunately, I think that for a lot of people with a, um, a, a faith or a religion, there's almost more blinders on. We happily give our trust and faith in spiritual leaders because we're, you know, it, it's faith for a reason. We're believing in the same, you know, core things. And so it's easier to assume that this, I'm in good hands and this person doesn't mean any harm. And, you know, regardless of what your views are and what your beliefs are, there are a lot of different reasons why someone would want to become part of a spiritual community, whether it really is tied to a particular faith or if it's, you know, a sense of community, if it's safety, connection with other people, um, seeking something new, um, a new experience, or maybe looking for support or looking for something, a missing purpose. And so you can just imagine how many people and how many positions we can be in as humans can easily become exploited walking into uh, an environment like that. You know, unfortunately, pretty much any system can be abused. And this is, I think, more common than people would realize. And I think that it's something that should be talked about really openly. Um, I'm not part of any particular religious group or organization, but I would hope that a healthy organization would be able to address the issue of spiritual abuse because it is something that is a reality among religious and faith communities. And I think it's almost the duty of a healthy group or organization to address this 
with transparency and openness and, um, you know, being humble, not being defensive about it, allowing people to ask difficult questions and showing understanding and empathy and patience and support for people who are questioning things. So we'll talk more about that later on. Um, but as I started to dig a little bit more into what spiritual abuse is and what it can look like, I found a really great resource. And there's a website, it's actually the Arizona Coalition to End Sexual and Domestic Violence. So it's acesdv.org. And they have a section, um, or I guess a, a toolkit for faith leaders about domestic violence. And I think the reason they have this on their website is um, many women's shelters are faith-based. And I mean, that's a whole other topic. I'm not going to get into that today. But um, they do actually have some really good information on spiritual abuse. So I pulled a little bit of that resource to share with you today. And what was great about their toolkit is they actually list some common characteristics that you might see in um, an abusive spiritual leader. And so I just want to walk through those. So I will say that you know, it's really important to understand that context is everything when it comes to um, looking at what's abusive and what's not. Um, you know, I, I do think that this is not something that should be thrown around, um, the word abuse. Um, abuse is clearly defined as a pattern of behaviors and tactics with the goal of um, having power and having control. But when you hear some of these characteristics, um, I just like to remind you that we have to be able to look at the whole picture. Um, so just because one of these characteristics is present doesn't mean that someone, that person is abusive. Um, but these are characteristics that you would likely find in someone who has been abusive as a spiritual leader. So the first one, and this is the most distinctive um, that you would see in um, an abusive system or leader. And this is someone who's authoritarian. So you might have a group that claims to be established by God or chosen to carry out God's work um, and therefore they claim the right or authority to command followers. So by saying, well we're here because of God, God has spoken to me, this organization in particular, we're here on behalf of God unlike other organizations who might claim to be. And so, you know, I have special authority and, you know, you should take that seriously. There's an assumption that God is operating through this person or this group. And so by default, it creates this hierarchy 
among followers or other group members to try and act or like carry out the abusive system. It's sort of a domino effect that, you know, we're under this authority and the higher up I am, the more power, the more authority I have. So followers under this are going to be inclined to submit to this authority um, often blindly because it's on behalf of God. And when you believe in God, you know, under an abusive system, you don't question that. Um, and so it creates this like almost umbrella of protection for um, an abusive leader. You know, no one's going to question them. No one's going to question their behavior. Everything that they do is because God told them to do it. It's God's plan. They're doing it on behalf of God. And so there's this devotion to the leader. Followers might be told that they'll be blessed if they submit to the authority of this person or that good things will happen to them, they'll be better off, they'll be, you know, promised to go to heaven or whatever it might be. And on the other side of that, anyone who goes against it is the opposite. They're sinners, they're going to hell, they're possessed, whatever it might be. So the next quality is they might be image conscious. They're very aware um, very calculated about how they appear to others and how they present themselves and they really like to control um, that any narrative about them so usually it's this image of like righteousness I'm better than you I'm you know can be almost elitist things get a, a bit fluffed and altered to sound more legitimate you know when they're talking they might um, tell little white lies, they might fluff things up a little bit um, to make it sound really, really special and make it sound really good. Um, you know, I have a special relationship with God that's above what other people have. You know, maybe they say things about other religious leaders or other organizations. Um, it could be covering things up or denying things that happened, not being humble, not being honest or open about um, flaws or mistakes that they've done in the past, glossing things over. So ultimately they're trying to make sure that there's no, their authority is never being questioned. There's no threat that it's going to be questioned. So this ends up being like a very unrealistic high standard and you know that's the standard for anyone who wants to be part of it who wants to be involved um, but you'll probably notice that the leaders themselves might not be held to the same standards again this comes back to um, this umbrella of protection where they're not questioned and challenged um, in the same way so any failure to meet this standard can result in followers inferiority to leaders resulting in more submission so 
the idea that I'm not good enough, you know, I'm not good enough for this leader, I'm not performing well, so therefore I'm not good enough for God, I need to make myself worthy, I need to work harder, pay more money, you know, dedicate myself more, give more up in my personal life, maybe even cover up for a leader to show that I'm more loyal. And this environment could end up isolating members from non-members of this group. So if there's people outside of their family, um, you know, friends, peers, whoever it is, who are not part of this group, um, now they're being polarized and, you know, people outside of the group might be questioning things, seeing changes in their behavior, or feeling like they're not present. Maybe they're burnt out because they're working so hard to perform. Um, but there's also the opposite happening from inside of the group where, you know, anyone who's a non-member is wrong, they're bad, stay away from them, don't believe them, don't listen to them, they're trying to trick you, just doing everything they can to rationalize abusive behavior and create this, it's almost like a grooming process. So this kind of creates an environment for things to be secret, um, like policies, procedures, probably are gonna be kept a little bit hush-hush. Um, more internal, smaller groups could even operate within the same larger group. So there could be, um, you know, smaller branches within the same, within the same group um, as a way to isolate groups internally. Um, one example of this is the Nixium cult. There have been a lot of documentaries recently that have come out about Nixium. Um, this was, you know, supposedly a progressive group, um, and, you know, it took off really quickly. The leader was abusive and created sort of this hierarchy and this chain of command with other people who were loyal to him and kind of did his dirty work for him. And within the Nixium group, there were smaller branches of other groups that had split people up by gender and were in fact, um, the people who were part of these smaller groups were being abused um, quite severely. And this was kept very secret people who were part of the larger group, some of them weren't even aware of these smaller groups. It was very exclusive, um, but a lot of things were hidden and this was all carried out for the main authority, the main leader of this group. So ultimately, there's probably going to be certain followers under this the lead or the main authority or the main abuser who end up also likely carrying out abusive behavior. And they're doing this because they believe they're special. They believe that they were chosen, um, you know, by God or through God, um, through this leader. 
and they're chosen to do God's work. Ultimately, the leader knows that things have to be kept secret and, you know, they have to not be threatened and avoid scrutiny and avoid questioning. So naturally, things would have to be covered up by other people. And when you lie a lot and you manipulate and you abuse as part of a large group, you can't do that on your own. You're gonna need other people to help cover up for you. And that's what happens. Another characteristic we might see is someone who suppresses criticism. So since the system is not based on truth, there's no room for questioning. So because um, an abusive leader has their authority and power by having several followers and members submit to them, they really need to protect this because this is what allows the system to keep going. And if that system didn't keep going, they would not be able to continue benefiting and getting whatever it is that they're wanting to get from this group. So there can't be any questioning, there can't be transparent, open discussions, there's no honesty, um, it, nothing is genuine. Doesn't mean that it won't appear genuine, or it won't appear that things are being addressed, but they're not being addressed in an open, honest, genuine way. So someone who does question or disagree with anything that they're given is seen now as a problem or defiant because they threaten to expose the truth or they're trying to expose the truth and they're making other people ask questions and that's potentially going to result in less people to submit and less people to carry out this abusive system. So this is a big threat to a religious authority. When issues come up, because we can't have a group of people in any size without some issue coming up, um, things are quickly covered up rather than actually dealt with. And any way that it is dealt with, it would often be in secret, um, it's from the top, it's unlikely to be dealt with in um, you know, a healing community environment. Leaders might be good at gaslighting or manipulating others with questions to be satisfied with their answers, um, you know, usually vague answers, or just flat out lie and, you know, it sounds believable. So it, it disrupts someone's ability to think for themselves and this is just another way for an abuser to control the narrative. If you're questioning, you know, any of this, then you're letting sin take over or you're not being loyal to God, you're not being committed enough, you're not being a, a good member of this group, um, you know, using fear, using judgment to keep people silent and make people feel ashamed and when we feel shame, we're more isolated. So this is another controlling me control mechanism. Another quality you might see is someone who 
strives for perfection. So in an abusive religion, someone has to earn salvation or blessings through performance of spiritual acts. So, you know, again, it's that impossible standard of you have to work yourself to the bone, you have to show endless dedication, and remember, this is an impossible, unrealistically high standard, and failure is strongly condemned, but failure is inevitable in this kind of environment. It will happen because it's impossible to achieve perfection. This is sort of blurring the lines between um, being a human and thinking of yourself as a god or having a godly standard. You know, certainly um, faith and spirituality can be a large part of who we are as people, but humans are incredibly complex beings and you know, we can't forget that we're human. We're not gods. We're humans. Um, but the, these lines get blurred on purpose. So the goal is f to achieve a godly standard because the, you know, the more perfect you are, the closer supposedly you are to God. When someone feels they're following all the rules, they might feel like a more worthy follower or member and act maybe even elitist or arrogant towards other people. So this can continue to be isolating, even within families who are, you know, part of the same group. But of course, failure will happen. This is not achievable. And so when this happens, um, the result often is shame. I failed. I'm not good enough. I'm unworthy. Um, and so this can lead to a lot of really problematic behaviors. Um, it can, you know, lead to feeling pressure to work harder, burning yourself out, becoming absent in your family, um, absent with the people who love and care about you, not taking care of yourself physically, emotionally, it could mean, um, you know, becoming closer with an abusive leader to try and prove your worthiness. So now maybe you're carrying out things that you're not proud of or don't feel right, but you feel pressure to do. And so, you know, there's more shame to compound what you were already dealing with. Um, or it could be a breaking point um, and you might be discarded by leaders and, and seen as weak or um, disloyal. And the last characteristic is someone who's unbalanced. So abusive religions distinguish themselves from others so that they can keep the claim that they're special to God. And usually they overemphasize things like prophecy biblical laws, you know, carrying things out to extremes on a more radical side or interpreting biblical scriptures, ceremonies, methods in an extreme way in order to fit the narrative that they're wanting to create. Again, the narrative that's going to 
help them benefit from their abuse. So this comes out as having maybe a unique, a modern, a fresh take on the, the religion or the belief and having special knowledge. So this validates the claim that they're special to God. You know, we've got this cool new spin on this religion or on this belief system. And, you know, it's maybe something that you've never heard of before, you've never seen before. And, um, you know, that's really intriguing. So those are some of the characteristics that were suggested um, through this Faith Later Toolkit that, again, you can find at acesdv.org under training resources. Um, one of the other tools that I stumbled upon, um, and if you've listened to any of my other podcasts, you'd know that I um, refer to power and control wheels, and there is a power and control wheel for spiritual and religious abuse. Um, and you can find this on several different websites. Um, if you just Google spiritual and religious abuse wheel, you will find it on one of many websites. Um, but this wheel includes a lot of categories that you would see in many of the other wheels of abuse. Um, but of course, the element that's different is spiritual. So I'll just walk through it briefly here. Um, one of the tactics you might see is isolation. And that's something I've already touched on and something that you will hear in Jen's story as well. Um, but this could be isolating you from another faith community that you've been part of. Um, maybe silencing you while you're already part of that group. Um, or even creating distance and breakdown within a family unit who are part of this group. Um, could be pressure or coercion to attend services or attend um, events that are tied to this group. Um, so there's lots with that one. Using community coercion. So one of the things that's different is you can be coerced by an abusive leader, but when we're talking about an organization or a group that you might be part of where there is an abusive system at its core. You now have the power of an entire community and the whole um, group behind the abusive system who can carry out this tactic. So it could be, you know, working through a series of leaders, um, really anyone who's in any role that is part of this group you know, teachers, quote-unquote counselors, anyone with any kind of perceived authority, and also the pressure you might feel to stay or to listen or to believe what you're told by other people who are there. It could be things that happen in person. It could be letters, phone calls, um, social media, emails. So again, there's a lot of overlap with um, other types of abuse and other forms of abuse. Um, victim blaming, and I would add to that using shame. 
Um, this is done using scripture, traditions, cultural norms to blame you and justify the abuse. And this could be, you know, using things against you. It could be using your skin color. Um, it could be using your age, your gender, um, you know, past mistakes or behaviors or things things you've said and done things you've confessed to um using all using anything really against you to make you feel bad weak um you know not good enough for god not created in god's image um pressure that or the idea that you know you were put here to be a servant to man or God is disappointed with you, um, really anything. And, you know, it's also using the institution as an authority against you. Restricting access to or use of healthcare. And this is a very big one. Um, you know, I mentioned that in an abusive um, system, the result, the result of having impossibly high standards and not having um, honesty and openness, it's it's always going to result in things happening in secret. And so, you know, of course, there are going to be people who are part of an organization that. Um, you know, have or engage in things that maybe go against rules or the beliefs of that group. And when it comes to things like family planning, um, you know, abortion, um, birth control, premarital sex, anything like that, there's going to be people who are doing these things, are engaging with these things. And they know that um, it goes against the beliefs of the organization. And so it has to be kept secret. When things are kept secret, um, often we're not as well-resourced. We're not as able to get the proper care and the proper support that we might need. Um, you know, imagine a teenage girl who has had sex before marriage and she's part of this group and, you know, now she needs to go to a doctor. She's worried she's pregnant. Maybe she has to be thinking about um, the possibility of abortion. And so just the toll that that would take on you emotionally to experience that alone and hearing and having to act out that you have the same beliefs um, or just the confusion of being part of this group and promoting these beliefs while um, feeling ashamed for your own actions. You know, this is, this is very toxic. And um, I do think this is another entire conversation, so I'm not going to get fully into it today, um, but it is important to, it is important to acknowledge. Um, 
you know, if a religious or spiritual group were to find out about something like that happening that was against their beliefs, then um, often there's a response of high control, um, needing to step in and, you know, pressure an individual to make certain choices that they don't want to make or just aren't fully theirs, coercing them, guilting them, shaming them into feeling bad or feeling unworthy um, when you don't necessarily know the circumstances of how they ended up in that situation. But that's not the point. The point is for the group and its members to control the situation, whatever it is, and make sure that um, their uh, status and appearance is not going to be threatened. So there's a lack of regard and consideration for the individual who might need to access healthcare. Using children, so um, again, with spiritual and religious abuse, there is overlap with child abuse. Um, so this is using scripture, traditions, and norms to arrange or force marriages for um, children or teenagers, to value males over females, um, or to even, you know, define gender, teaching children that males are more powerful and more important and females need to submit to males um, or that being anything other than cisgendered or heterosexual is wrong or is not allowed, is not, not good. Um, using girls as commodities um, forcing you to have a child or forcing you to raise a child um, in a particular faith or, you know, controlling the way that they're brought up under that faith. Um, and that is another big element of this conversation is the question around how much consent and how much free will children have to attend a religious or spiritual group um, while they're young and then to grow up and how their personal views are going to develop and how much that's accepted and supported for them to be individuals and think for themselves as every individual deserves and is capable of doing. Another one is controlling sexuality and reproduction. So this is sort of tied into um, using healthcare. And, you know, again, this is ways of forcing, coercing, or pressuring someone into either having sex, unprotected sex, any type of sex act, um, flirtation, um, you know, using flirtation or your body or your sexuality to represent the group or, um, to benefit the group or benefit the leader in any way. 
denying or forcing family planning, um, participating in polygamy or promoting polygamy, you know, making a clear definition of this is the way, this is the way that we must be in relationship with another person, um, saying that, you know, marriage is reserved for a man and a woman, um, sex is reserved for a man and a woman, and they must be married, um, or promoting the idea that um, people who are too young and not in relationship and not consenting should be engaging in these acts um, for the sake of reproduction and for um, God's mission. Um, so again, it's really um, taking these things that are deeply personal and putting the organization or the group at the center of it and controlling it. Another element is asserting authority. And so this, I think, is really um, a big one that's at the core of spiritual abuse is just the idea that, um, you know, one person or one group has authority over others. Um, it's basically a rejection of equality. Um, this is the idea that, you know, gender roles are clearly defined and there could be actual rules or regulations around um, how genders are to perform and to interact with each other, um, asserting authority to reinforce male privilege, um, so having like a patriarchal, misogynistic system that is passed down and enforced, um, encouraging submission to that authority, giving commands, and even using punishment to achieve submission. And again, I think this is one of the big elements of spiritual abuse is using God as the ultimate authority. Um, but this is being done through a human. So again, those lines get blurred between humanity and God's. You know, and I, I think this is something that's extremely problematic that unfortunately I do see at different levels, you know, on a spectrum, but I do see it a lot with um, a lot of uh, spiritual beliefs. The idea that God is behind all the actions of an individual and that if someone is abusive or causes harm, the abuser and others can justify this abuse by saying like, this is what God wants, this is what God told me to do, this is his plan, you know, it's not actually me, it's God acting through me, and it means that the abuser is seen as equal to or having as much power as God, and so they can't be held accountable. There's no way to hold God accountable, um, and there's no way to hold someone who's claiming the same authority accountable and so they get away with a lot more and again this is something that um, you will hear in Jen's story um, and regardless of you know whether someone has that belief and and they're not 
um, actively abusing anyone or, or, you know, causing harm to others, in my gut, I don't know how that can be a healthy way for anyone to live. Feeling like they don't have personal authority in themselves and that everything they do is because of God or everything they do is is through they're acting through God like you know where where is you where are you you know and you know to live your life not making decisions for yourself not being or having a sense of authenticity and a sense of being self-assured in who you are I would I would think that if you're able to have a sense of who you are and have personal autonomy, you're more likely to make an honest choice and an honest commitment to a God or to a spiritual belief system as opposed to it feeling like there's pressure or coercion to act certain ways because it's through this this higher power that's outside of who you really are but again um we're talking about spiritual abuse so i just wanted to acknowledge that because it is one of the elements behind this type of abuse that there is a real lack of accountability and we're going to address that a little bit in part two the last element of the spiritual and religious abuse wheel um, is prolonging abusive relationships. And so again, this is part of the overlap. Um, and I will be having a separate episode on this because it is a really important topic. Um, but a religious or spiritual group might have um, the belief that regardless of the circumstances, people should stay together and stay in relationship and that you must sacrifice yourself um, or, you know, if you're not a man, that you should submit to a man um, and accept that you have less power and less authority in the relationship. Um, and groups might make excuses or minimize abuse or harm um, or any unhealthy elements of a relationship and convince you to stay in it or accept it and just suffer through it because it is part of your beliefs. It goes against your beliefs to separate or to divorce or to give up on the relationship. It's seen as giving up or it's seen as a failure. So, you know, that just causes so much harm and so much damage for not only the people in the relationship, but also family members, if they're children, um, extended family, people who are close to you, people who care about you. Um, it has this ripple effect. So, Again, I am going to talk about that more in relation to domestic violence in another episode. So now that we've defined what spiritual abuse is and what it can look like, I'm going to switch gears and share Jen's story with you. 
Um, so I did record this interview at a separate time, um, and we were fighting a little bit of sickness at the time, but we were pretty much able to talk through our symptoms. So I am going to share the first half of Jen's story, um, so I hope you enjoy. I'll be like... <laughs> I know, the whole time, just recovering from illness. Okay, so um, I guess I'll introduce my mom, who is named Jen. Um, you're obviously your own individual, but you're also my mother. Um, so thanks so much for joining me to have this conversation. It's my pleasure. <laughs> we do laugh a lot, and we're probably going to be laughing a couple times throughout this, so apologies in advance. Um, yeah, so Jen, do you want to just say a little bit about, like, who you are and why this topic is important to you? Well, um, I have a history of growing up in a somewhat faith-based home, and as I went through my young adult life, um, Myself and my husband got involved in um, a church setting that I would say it was pretty unhealthy. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it was over a, a course of time that really impacted our lives um, as a newly married couple and as a couple starting, you know, to have a family. And, um, after sort of navigating through that and coming out of that, you know, it's been a, a journey, I guess, to sort of figure out what exactly that whole situation entailed and how it affected our life, mm -hmm. how it affected our family, how it affected our friends, and kind of after reflecting on that over a number of years, you know, just realizing that environments where there's, you know, kind of manipulation and unhealthy aspects to community really affects a lot of people. So I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share my experience. Yeah. No, I, I definitely appreciate you being open to sharing and, you know, you've already kind of touched on how complex this can really be and how many layers there are, you know, not just the impact on you as an individual going through a direct experience, but also, you know, your family, your friends, the people around you and how those layers sort of carry on as you go through life and you start to unravel it. So... We'll definitely dive a bit deeper into that as we go on. Um, now, because we're talking about spiritual abuse, you know, I've, I've kind of defined it, you know, how, um, how it's defined in, on the internet, you know, just a Google search. But what are your thoughts about how to understand what spiritual abuse is? Like, how would you define it? Mm -hmm. Well... 
I did a lot of reading after we kind of came out of that experience and, um, you know, spiritual abuse is, like you say, a very complex and broad topic. So generally, I think when you say spiritual abuse, people immediately think of your traditional church or some kind of church setting, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, whether that be a Christian setting or a Catholic setting. But I think spiritual abuse can be broader than even that. Um, so a quote that I um, came across <clears throat> from a professor of theology, um, I thought kind of summed it up fairly well in a concise way. Um, and she suggested looking for three criteria um, to be detached from material gain, self-importance, and the urge to dominate others. And often what we see um, as labeled as spiritually, spiritual abuse tend to gravitate towards that. So, mm. um, you know, using the name of God or gods or Christ to promote one's own importance, one's own material gain, and a right to oppress others. And, you know, that's a very, again, a very broad sort of definition, but it encompasses all the different aspects that someone might experience if they're in sort of a toxic environment like that. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to summarize sort of the, the three criteria there that you mentioned. And, you know, after we started talking about like, yeah, you know, you want to share your story and we want to have this conversation. The more we kept talking about it, I think the more we realized that this was going to be a really big conversation mm -hmm. and there's so much to talk about. Um, and, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to cover everything even just in this two-part series. So hopefully I'll have you back for more conversations, but it's sure. true. It's, you know, it's so... It's so vast. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you want to say about um, like how you think of spiritual abuse or how you personally define it? Well, I think for, you know, speaking out of my own experience, I guess, you know, that having an environment where um, generally speaking, the people who are who are there attending or, or getting involved are sort of sidelined and their, um, I guess, ability to have the freedom to think critically, make their own choices without duress or judgment mm. are often taken away by leadership. And leadership taking the role of being, you know, sort of this ultimate authority. Um, and, and, you know, that creates an environment where there's a lot of shame and a lot of fear around questioning and thinking critically about what you're hearing, what mm. you're experiencing, and, you know, what you're being told. Yeah. So that would be, I think, the primary experience that I had. And again, just, you know, a very broad sort of overarching 
experience. Mm. Just so many facets and so many details beyond that. But yeah, um, you know, I touched on you know the fact that sometimes when you think of spiritual abuse, you immediately think of a church. But there's all sorts of movements in society today that can be can fall under that umbrella. I yeah. think. And it's not just church, but it could be, you know, um, new age environments. It could be um, even, you know, the environment of the yoga world. Mm. Um, You know, these kind of characteristics and ways of interacting and building community can happen in all sorts of settings. Mm. That's so true. And that brings up such a good point that, you know, we're not just talking about any particular religion um, or, you know, the idea of church or organized religion that, you know, you can abuse any system. And this type of abuse, what makes it special is that it's tied to your core belief system or a personal faith that you have, which is why it can be um, you know, such a, such a devastating type of abuse Mm -hmm. and so deep seated. Um, it's hard to unravel that. So, um, just to be clear that, you know, as we're talking about spiritual abuse, we're not, um, tying this to any particular religious facet, but it, it really could be, um, anywhere. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a good point. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you're able to share a little bit about your own experience. Um, You know, you identify as a victim and survivor of spiritual abuse, and I know you've had some lived experience that you're willing to share today. Um, So maybe just to start off, could you tell me a little bit about the organization and how you became involved? Sure. Um, And I guess just to clarify, you know, when we are talking about lived experience, um, we're not going to be giving away any identifying information. There's going to be no real names used um, of people or an organization. Um, I understand the organization that you've had experience with is still alive and well today. So um, we'll definitely use de-identified information. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you're able to just say a little bit about what, what, uh, you know, how did you become involved and, and what were you involved with? Sure. So the organization we were involved with in this case was actually a church. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I first became involved uh, I guess around 17 years of age. Wow. Pretty early on in a time where obviously as a youth you're exploring different things, you're you know, trying to come to terms with your own core beliefs. And um, I had a good friend and her family went to this church and I was raised in a in a mainline denominational church. We, we weren't really involved, but we were your sort of typical you know, go a couple times a month on a Sunday to a church service. And, um, so, you know, I had, I had some former experience at church, Mm. but this 
was a completely new experience. And um, so my girlfriend asked me to go and uh, I said, hey, sure, why not? So the the church was not a main a main line or a mainstream church. It was uh, a smaller smaller gathering, um, <clears throat> and I really didn't know anything about it. So the interesting thing in looking back that as a young person who had already had an upbringing with somewhat of a church background, mm-hmm. I realize now that what I had been raised in was really my only reference point. Mm. So I hadn't had experiences at different types of churches, um, different denominations of churches. You know, I just had that one experience. So when we, when I actually went, I was terrified. Mm. Um, Interesting. It was like nothing I had ever, ever experienced before. Um, the service was about, I don't know, two and a half hours long. There were lots of young families there, mm-hmm. and it, I mean, I had a lot of, a big range of emotions during the service, but as I was there, you know, it basically sounded the same as what I had been hearing at the church that I was mm. growing up in. Right, okay. So, you know... At the end of the day, when we left, I, I was kind of upset. I, I had some tears because I think initially, I wouldn't have known this, but looking again, looking back, there was an element of confusion happening inside of me, even mm. from the very first introduction. And it, if I really look at it now, there was probably an element in my gut that was sort of a red flag, but then mixed in there was a was a lot of confusion about, mm. well, it kind of sounds the same, but not really. Yep. So kind of just left it at that. And then, uh, uh, you know, a short period of time passed and I was invited back again. So sure, why not? You know, it's my good friend. Her whole family goes, so I'll go. And the second time I went, I felt really uncomfortable. Really? Um, Just with the content and the intensity of the service, Hmm. um, I felt really uncomfortable. And, And what actually started to happen is I started to question what I had been raised in. Wow. Like next to what you were hearing. Exactly. Interesting. So, you know, some of the things were just like, well, why didn't I know about this before? Or, you know, my, my parents, my, or my upbringing, my, my mother in particular, you know, had a very strong faith. Mm -hmm. Um, She was a very humble, loving person. Why did I not see this side of, of faith or Christianity And I don't know whether it's coincidence or whether it's, you know, an element of, of the environment where they're trying to bring people into their organization, but 
I had a lot of feedback over the next course of me, you know, maybe a couple months from people saying, you know, well, this is, you know, this is a deeper version of your faith. And, you know, a lot of people are misaligned and misrepresented in what the true Christian experience is. And so, you know, from interacting with different people that were there, my confusion and insecurity around what I had been taught became greater. Mm. Interesting. So there started to, some of the dust started to kick up a little bit. Mm-hmm. For sure. So um, as you're talking, you know, I hear you mention that you were hearing some things that were different than what you were raised with um, and were sort of red flags to you. And that's that must have been pretty intense, you know, 17 when you were raised um, with a background in, in faith and, you know, you're having red flags about something that should be familiar to you in a, in a church setting. Like it must've been pretty intense. Um, it was, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to know, like, what were some of the specific things you were hearing that were confusing to you or, um, just didn't quite sit well with you? Sure. So first and foremost, I think it was the actual experience of the church service. So it was very different than what I was used to, which was more traditional, um, more scripted, um, traditional hymns and that sort of thing. This was very dynamic. Um, People were dancing. Um, People were raising their hands. Um, I remember at one point in the very beginning, they had a microphone at the side of the building or at the side of the room and somebody came to the side and started speaking this gobbledygook language, Mm -hmm. which I had no idea what was going on. Interesting. And then somebody else came up and then spoke in English, you know, a bunch of words and... So there was all sorts of elements that were <clears throat> of, of the actual experience that were somewhat alarming and very confusing. Um, some of the things that, that were specifically talked about, um, you know, I think probably one of the biggest ones was that, you know, God has this kind of nebulous, if that's the right word. (laughs) Um, Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Sort of out there, direct line to your, you know, your brain. Like basically that, that it wasn't, what I was taught was, you know, we can demonstrate our life in an act of love in different ways that represents God's love. But this was more, you know, God is supernaturally going to do something through you. Mm. And it wasn't really defined. It was just very out there. Mm. Um, a lot of times they talked about how, you know, 
you you're marked and you're you're called and that your life is is different from other people's and mm. it's you know god has told you to set your life aside for something and i think in reflecting on that you know there's this idea of pumping people up and making this unrealistic idea that you're super special compared to other people. Right. So it makes you feel important. It makes you feel sort of accepted and like mm. you're, you've got this immense calling when in actual fact, we're all equal. There's, there's yeah. not one person that's more special than the other. Well, that's sort of what, you know, mm when when I mean obviously I was raised in a faith-based home and that sort of changed and grew over time um, but when I think of many people who have a faith or a belief in God um, feeling like you know God is love and love is equal and you know God loves everyone equally and so it you know no wonder that would be confusing to someone because when someone thinks of God, they just automatically think of love and equality and, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's sort of like a grooming process mm -hmm. the way you're describing it. It sounds like, you know, targeting someone and grooming them to feel more special or like they have, uh, special mission to accomplish um and you know I'm curious to see where that goes mm -hmm, for sure um <clears throat> I think tied up in that you know it, it's slowly started out as you know you're special and you know anybody who's here is special but then it, it quickly kind of dissolved into this and how you know you're special and how you show you're special is by committing to this church. And <clears throat> they were very big on the teaching of covenant, covenants. So basically, you know, your loyalty is to the church and the leadership there. Right. And the reason... You know, they kind of wrapped it all up in the reason you would do that is because that's what God's called you to do. Mm. Um, they also uh, taught a lot about healing and it was a very sort of hyped up, everybody can be healed, you know, no matter what's going on. Mm. Um, there was a lot of people, every, every service, you know, people would be called to the front and they spent a good amount of time at the end of the service just, you know, having this healing prayer. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's just so vast, the amount of things that, that were sort of different than what I grew up with. Yeah. Um, I mean... There was a big focus on money. Mm. So not only in terms of money giving to the church, but also that you know, because you commit and you, you become a covenant member to us, you know, God sees you as obedient. And because of that, your obedience will 
basically provide you with financial wealth. And mm. there wasn't ever rarely a service where that was touched on. So if they're saying God will provide you with financial wealth, I mean, did that ever happen? Like, were they giving people money? Were people coming back to the church and saying, hey, I won the lottery because <laughs> I'm obedient? <laughs> no, no. I mean, as time went on, and you'll hear the rest, uh, you know, kind of how my journey went. Yeah. Just there were a lot of people who financially struggled for a very long time in their life. You know, it wouldn't be uncommon for there to be two and sometimes three offerings taken up during one service. Wow. So you can imagine the financial pressure on people. Yeah. I mean, I can see how, you know, that could easily be, um, that position could easily be abused and take advantage of someone who's you know, experiencing a vulnerable time in their life um, under, like, a false sense of security that if I'm obedient, um, by the sound of it, not to God, but to the, the covenant of the church, then this will be the answer to my problems. Yeah. I mean... <clears throat> Again, a lot of what I'm speaking about is because of years of sort of reflecting and reading. And at the time, I wouldn't have been able to necessarily articulate this. But, mm. you know, that's that's one of the biggest issues with this kind of um, system of abuse or manipulation is that key people and leaders play on the vulnerabilities of people who come to these organizations. <clears throat> and, you know, you're dealing with somebody's core beliefs. Mm. So it's, it's not like it's just, oh, I'm going to convince you that this red car is the right car for you to buy. We're talking about the essence of your core beliefs and how you live your life. Yeah. And it's so insidious. It just slowly, slowly, slowly over time, they're able to see kind of what makes you tick and surround you with all of this pampering and loving kindness, all in the guise of, you know, getting you to the point where you're just so hooked in that your your target mark for for the truth is just a little bit off mm. but as you progress it gets further and further away from the truth yeah wow so at this point you're 17 you know you've been to church this church a few times and it hasn't been what you were familiar with at home and you're having these confusing gut feelings, but there's nothing really, like at this point, there's nothing outwardly abusive or, you know, it's not black and white yet. So it's still easy to justify as, you know, you're just being faithful, you're just supporting the church. Um, and that's part of what makes it so confusing is like an abusive dynamic often has a lot of positive aspects to it still and you know it's not like anyone just joins a cult 
no one just goes and decides to, you know, be abused. You join something that you feel is really good and has a lot of good aspects and you want to be part of it. And then over time, the abusive tactics sort of trickle in slowly. So, you know, what were some of the positive things that were a draw for you to this particular church? Well, I think primarily it was the fact that I was going there with my friend. Her family all went. I was very close to her family. Um, Spent a lot of time at their home. And, you know, there were other youth that were there. So it it was a vibrant sort of organization to be at where, you know, I felt like I was, like you said, following my faith and also discovering something new. Mm. Um, but to be completely honest, even back then, I wasn't, I didn't go all the time. I didn't go every Sunday. Yeah. I just went once in a while. And I think there was a part of me that justified going because, you know, I would say, oh, well, my friend's family goes there and her parents go there and, you know, they're adults, they must know what they're doing. So it was easy to sort of justify the flag, the red flags. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, as a teenager too, like we're more more motivated by our friends and our peers and, you know, we're more likely to go where our friends are going as opposed to where adults might warn us um, Mm -hmm. could be like a potentially dangerous or unhealthy situation. So, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So after about a year of kind of going on and off, um, I had then met who is now my husband. uh, My dad. Your dad. (laughs) (laughs) And we were dating and we were, you know, fairly serious into our relationship and he was also raised in a traditional mainline church Mm -hmm. so that was one of our I guess commonalities of coming together and he actually came to the church to check it out Mm. with you with me yep interesting and that's kind of where a real huge turn happened, mm. I think, for me and him. And so what was his first impression when he went there? Um, I think he was surprised. Um, I think it, it, he identified with certain things there. Mm. Um, and his background was a little bit different than mine in terms of church because his entire family was very involved in the church mm. um, growing up in his own church and his family church. And he had a lot of responsibility and leadership over the course of his teen years and right into, he was in university at this time. Right. So right through university. Um, and also grew up in a home that was very encouraging of opportunities and um you know sort of taking on new ventures 
um, definitely encouraging, you know, him and his siblings to be in roles of leadership in different things. So for him, I think it really sparked something. Mm. And as, as well, the music, I think, was a big, a big thing for him that really interested him because it wasn't your traditional hymns. It was much more upbeat. They had a band. He's a musician. Yeah. So that really, you know, tweaked his curiosity. Yeah. And, like, those are really positive things, too. They are. You know, music, dance, singing, having what sounds like a more modern church. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, we went to churches. Um, we went to a few different churches you know, mm-hmm. when I was growing up, um, this place being one of them, but, um, you know, what I remember as a young kid is like the boring <laughs> sitting there, yeah. listening to some person talk, um, maybe you get some cookies, <laughs> <laughs> that's always good, but, you know, it was always very dry and boring, um, which I think is just the kid experience when you are tagging along with adults a lot of the time. Sure. But, you know, at 17, I mean, I know where I was at when I was 17, and I can't imagine, like, going to church with my friends. So I could see how that would be a big draw if there's a lot of fun and liveliness Mm -hmm. and if there's a lot of your peers or your friends who are going as well. Like, those are all really positive things. So, um you know, it's, it's not obvious that there would be anything to worry about. Right. Yeah. So how did things start to escalate? Like, when did you really start to go, okay, I'm, you know, really, really needing to pay attention to this? Sure. So I guess it was around the time that my husband, we weren't married at the time, but he started coming out and, you know, getting a lot more involved. Um, around that same time, I started to really disengage. And I was having trouble articulating, you know, what the red flags were. But mm. I just knew in my gut that something wasn't right for me. And <clears throat> at the same time... My girlfriend and her family um, were almost fully disengaged. And there had been a string of events that had happened. Um, the church congregation had grown quite a bit. And there was, you know, obviously different communities of families that attended. And there were, of course, I was at that time around 18 going on 19, and, you know, I, I heard sort of the whisperings of different things happening at church. Mm. And my girlfriend and her family, of course, because I spent a lot of time with them, would talk about it. So I knew a little bit, but I didn't know the whole story. And basically one of the families there, um, the father, had some questions, had some flags, and I guess went to the leadership to discuss it and it went very poorly and so what ended up happening is the that particular family was asked to leave the church Mm. and uh, it just 
sent ripples through the congregation and um, particularly for my girlfriend's father who is who is a very intelligent well-read successful businessman and so they were kind of the next family to exit because mm. I guess they approached the leadership and tried to discuss things too and it, it really didn't go well so that's kind of what I knew at the time so now I was left with the fact that my girlfriend's family had left and I was still there mm. and I didn't want to be there wow <clears throat> but your partner mm-hmm. was there that's right and he's pretty pretty engaged with it at this point he was very engaged with it and very quickly by nature he is a person that takes things on Mm. so very quickly it it felt comfortable for him um the environment there is very much about doing things and being involved and being busy with meetings and all sorts of things and you know, it was sort of a mirror of what he grew up with. So I think naturally it felt comfortable for him and it felt like a right fit. Yep, I could see that. So we were shortly after that engaged and it became a contentious issue mm. between us even before we were married. Um, <clears throat> I think certain leaders there saw something in your dad that they knew they could use to benefit the church. Right. Strengths and qualities and tools that, you know, he had. And they really honed in on him. Yeah. Yeah. I guess with his faith being so important to him Mm -hmm. as well, it's sort of like you talked about earlier that um, tactic of making someone feel special and important and like they have a greater purpose um, to serve God. I can imagine, um, you know, someone who does have a very deep personal faith. Somebody who has the, puts the importance on their faith feels like it's a, it's a, it's a win-win situation because they're not only using their skills, but they're also using it to further their faith. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And it's all under the guise of doing the right thing, doing something good. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the idea of he and I not being on the same page was a really difficult one because Obviously, I was in love, and I wanted to get married, Um, and so I think I compensated by flip-flopping back and forth Mm. from, okay, I'm here with you, and we're doing this, or no, this is not for me, I don't want to do this, and it just became a roller coaster. And I think some of that was just a real breakdown in our communication because there was so much pressure and outside influence from the church community and the leadership there. And and it ended up becoming sort of a a divisive point. 
yeah between us so this started to really pick up when you got engaged correct um like how did that play out with the church um being involved Mm -hmm. in supporting you guys through your engagement well that was another another issue for me that raised the alarm bell I guess because obviously you know most girls dream about how their wedding's going to look and I definitely had ideas about what I wanted and you know I wanted we were originally going to get married in the church where I grew up which is I didn't have a lot of long ties with the minister per se mm. but in terms of a venue it was a very large ornate very beautiful church mm. um <clears throat> and so as we went through you know sort of planning the wedding and whatnot there were all these requirements about you know having to meet with the pastor of the church but as, as we went through planning our engagement there became more and more stipulations on you know what we were supposed to do because at this point in time your dad was getting quite involved in the church and he had taken on certain responsibilities. He was involved in the children's ministry programming and they were sort of looking to, I think, see that he might take that on as a full role. There was a woman who was, who was leading that, but she wanted to be finished. Mm. And so, you know, because we were quote-unquote, involved in the church, um, there were all these stipulations that were required of couples that were going to get married. So right from, you know, we had to meet with the pastor there and do all these, I don't know, it was like eight or ten marriage counseling sessions, which, hey, is fine. Like, I, I don't see any problems with that, other than the fact that the pastor wasn't a counselor Mm. and actually was not even an ordained he was an ordained minister but he was not an educated he had no bachelor of theology or anything like that right he actually was a he used to be a telephone repairman and interesting turned pastor so you know I was not down for that I I really you know didn't want to be that immersed and as we started to look for you know where we're going to host our wedding and whatnot um, it became a challenge because the pastor there refused to marry us in the church that I grew up in Hmm. if we if he was going to marry us it had to be in their church which was basically a gym auditorium so you can imagine how that felt to me (laughs) No thanks, not for my wedding. Yeah. So anyway, all of these all of these little events just continued to add to my disengagement. Right. I didn't want to be there. So you're looking to sort of compromise mm-hmm. by saying, you know, I love the church venue that you know I'm familiar with from my upbringing it's a beautiful spot I'd like to get married here but you know we'd be happy to have you 
be the person to marry us. And he was not going to budge on that. That's right. So that sort of carried on as you went through the planning. Where did you actually end up getting married? So we did end up getting married at that church, uh, not my home church, okay. or not the church I grew up in. Yeah. Um, and we had friends who were florists who we hired, so they did our flowers, and they um, set up a beautiful display, um, you know, with sort of a Japanese backdrop and whatnot, and that apparently that was a problem too, I don't know. <laughs> I at that point, was just kind of ignoring everything. (laughs) (laughs) They wanted um, to do all the decorations and everything. They did not want that set up in there, and I don't know what all the reasoning was. But anyway, regardless, we ended up getting married there. So So how did things change after? Because, you know, I was married recently, Mm -hmm. as you know. (laughs) Yes, I do know that. (laughs) And um, I just can't imagine having people who are part of a community that are there to support you really trying to dictate and you know restrict what you're wanting to do as a way to celebrate you know making a commitment to Mm -hmm. the person that you love and for a lot of people their wedding involves a ceremony or ritual that's really important to them or has some sort of spiritual significance to it. So I can understand that would be really, there'd be a lot of pressure behind that and it could be really disappointing Mm -hmm. um, to have that experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, obviously I don't regret, you know, my, my choice of who I married. (laughs) I, Definitely, um, the aspect around what my wedding looked like and how it played out. Yeah, I had to, you know, come to terms with that disappointment. Mm. And I think that that was sort of just one way or like the beginning stages of how people who are manipulating you or in an environment of spiritual abuse coerce you Mm. and it's tiny little step-by-step things but it it impacts every area of your life yeah and you know the focus I mean again it's very complex but you know, you have my husband who's very involved at this point and excited about this great opportunity. He's excited about getting married. And then you've got, you know, this group of people, this organization with a certain belief system chiming in on that. And then you've got sort of your peripheral people around you, your family, your friends, Um, people who don't go to the church and there was a real element of taking away the celebration of the unity of two people Mm. the focus was so much on God 
and the church and how we as a couple supposedly have this big calling on our life. And, you know, that's not what it was. That's not what it was for me. I was getting married. Yeah. I mean, I dreamt about getting married. And it just, every every element of your life is sort of um, usurped or bypassed to focus on God and the church. Right. And, you know, it sounds to me like God was being thrown around a lot as a way to justify these choices and the pressure and the coercion, you know, I would think that any church um, that believes in God would be accepting of anyone who has a similar belief and a similar commitment to their faith um, and, and equally welcoming. And so that definitely is a really big red flag to hear that a pastor or a leader of the church would see that as a threat. Um, you know, there should be no threat if it's another space where you're celebrating God and your faith and your commitment. Um, but it makes it sound, it makes it look like it is a lot more personal and tied to him being the owner of this church. Exactly. And, you know, there were many conversations that I remember having around that exact topic of Mm. what makes our faith, how we grew up, and what we believe less than what apparently they believe. Right. And, you know, it became clearer and clearer over time that that was the attitude that well, we're the real Christians, Mm. you know, you guys are just doing whatever, but this place is the real place. This is where God really is. And if you're not here, you're going to be missing that. Mm. And that's sort of what we see in, you know, typical cases of spiritual abuse. You have one person in human form Mm -hmm. who is, taking the authority of God into their own hands and saying, you know, I'm the ultimate authority on what is and isn't, you know, according to this religion or what is and isn't acceptable, good or bad, right or wrong. Um, So how did things start to, or I guess, continue to play out after you were Mm -hmm. officially married? So some of this is a blur. So so, sometimes I get my time mixed up. That's fair. um, I think it was right before we got married that uh, my husband uh, became officially an unpaid volunteer position of children's coordinator. Hmm. And that was coordinating all the children's programs. And, you know things just progressed. I mean, he certainly was happy being there. Um, and I think I was still very much, you know, I don't know what to do because I just got married and, you know, obviously I want to support my husband. Um, 
and it wasn't like I just blindly went along. I mean, we had many, 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 many conversations mm. about, you know, I don't fit here. I don't feel right about this. You know, I'm not sure where this is going. I don't re really want to be plugged in here. Um, but for some reason, we just couldn't get on the same page. Mm. And that just became more and more difficult um, as he got more involved and I just disengaged from so many things. Mm. Um, so you were having these real red flags <clears throat> at this point and he, that wasn't his experience at the time. Correct, yeah. Wow. So, I mean, we did try to um, get some input and some counseling. However, all the counseling was in-house, you know, it yeah. was always either through the pastor and his wife or somebody else in the church or somebody else that was referred through the church. Mm. And a lot of these people weren't even actually like quali licensed. licensed, qualified counselors, mm. which was a problem for me. Um, but the subtle change in your thinking and belief system, it happens so slightly over a period of time that I could see, you know, that my husband was getting more and more sucked in, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And he was well-meaning. He, you know, he, he would never want to do something wrong but sure. it didn't feel like it was wrong yeah yeah I think that's the key is you know again faith has always been something really important to him and mm -hmm. it all of this is happening under the guise of him serving the God that he you know believes in and he's committed to and he's doing all of this out of the goodness of his heart and hoping to, you know, be of service, mm -hmm. I guess. Another interesting point around that too is, you know, in the generation I was raised in, it was women didn't have the same um, freedom, I guess, to speak their mind make their own choices. I'm not saying I didn't have those choices. I 100% did. Mm. But, you know, all the facets of the way you're raised and your belief system come into play here in terms of how you interact with your partner. Yeah. And, you know, maybe in this day and age for young women who might run into this situation or it may not be this way, but there's a possibility that early on, if there's something that cannot be resolved or I think there's the, the opportunity more now for women to say, I'm sorry, I'm not doing this. You go ahead. <laughs> um, I'm walking away. Yeah. Um, and, and it doesn't have to mean that your relationship is not intact. Mm. Whereas the thinking around, you know, the idea of marriage and men and women, 
at the time when we got married and especially in the upbringing and I would say particularly more in your dad's case in his family life that women were more were encouraged to support the husband you know and you know that that was part of what was playing on me as a young woman at that time I I 100% could have just said okay I'm I'm done like I'm still married I'm not going to this church you're welcome to go to it if you want but there were those elements of belief that for whatever reason I didn't feel comfortable doing that absolutely I mean I think even recognizing that you had real gut feelings and real concerns about what was going on and you're also a new spouse like you were newlyweds and you're wanting to be a good wife a good partner you're wanting to support your husband like there's so much that is internalized for us as women to put others first and be just a good woman a good wife um and on top of that I mean let's be honest there's so much of that that exists in organized religion where you know it's very um patriarchal even misogynistic um it's based on men having certain roles and women having certain roles um so there's very real um tangible that's a that's a tangible experience for a lot of women and like you said part of it is also generational and and your experience of upbringing Absolutely. And it definitely was the case in this particular church that it was taught, you know, men are the head of the home. Uh, women are there. Uh, the, the greatest phrase always was men and women are equal. They just have different roles. Men mm. are the head of the home and the women's role is to support him in God's calling. Oh, and, how generous. Yeah, how generous. <laughs> and, you know, that was that was one hundred percent the 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 mentality and the setting, you know, behind the way we started our marriage. And I actually, at my core belief, didn't believe that. Mm. Uh, even though I was raised in a, you know, obviously I'm fifty, almost fifty three years old. So back in my day, yeah, there were some of those roles, but I internally did not believe that. Yeah. And so anyway, I mean, everything continued to escalate over the course of about seven years, seven, eight years, um, <clears throat> to the point where the pastor there approached my husband, um, took him out for lunch by himself and, and approached him to resign from his job with the government and come and work full time at the church as an associate pastor. Being paid this time. Being paid this time, right. yeah. Um, so, and in the end, that is actually what ended up happening. So he spent, I think it was set around seven years um, on staff there wow. uh, as a full-time associate pastor. So what did your life look like at that time? You know, he's full-time 
invested in the church, you know, before that seven-year stint started, you were already wanting out, you were already wanting to not be involved, um, but you were there for another seven years, so how did Mm -hmm. that impact you? Oh, deeply. Yes. (laughs) Deeply (laughs) and broadly. I mean, we, we, we had started our family then, so um, over the course of those seven, well, the first three years, I guess, three and a half years, we had mm-hmm. three kids. Three perfect children. <laughs> three perfect children in three and a half years. Um, and, you know, oddly enough, it just makes me laugh now that, you know, the, the offer for him to come on staff was made between him and the pastor and um, the requirement for him doing that was that your dad and I were basically committed mm. to the role that he that your dad would play right. and I just find that so hilarious that I was not involved in the process of you know the offer yeah and that is that is in and of itself a tactic um yeah because I to this day believe that the pastor and his wife knew that I was not well I know they did that I was not bought in so if they could isolate my husband Mm -hmm. and get him pumped up and excited and on board Mm -hmm they knew they would have a better chance of him saying yes. Yeah, in a way they had to because, you know, if you weren't just submissive, it was going to be too much work for them. They yeah. they had to. And and I wasn't submissive, and it was a lot of work for them. <laughs> <laughs> for seven years. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, that uh, that affected every aspect of my life from you know, my raising my kids, I spent a lot of time on my own because your dad, as you know, worked probably 80 hours a week. Um, he was, he was always at the church, just constantly at meetings. Um, his whole life became the church and I couldn't do that because I, you know, First of all, as a mom raising three kids, I wanted to be there for my kids. But there were many times where the pressure was too great and I and I was pressured into being at, you know, all these functions and whatnot. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's a huge regret of mine. Um, but so, yeah, that it, it affected, obviously, my relationship with your dad. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very clear about not feeling good about that decision for him to leave his his other job um but really it it became a journey for me alone which was probably a good thing because I was very young when I got married Mm. um so I had a lot of time to really I don't know grow up maybe Yeah, I guess like reflect and go through that experience and, you know, I'm sure at a point it was very clear to you that, you know, we've had so many conversations, I can only voice my concerns so many times, Mm -hmm. Um, 
and it probably became clear to you that I'm not getting through to him right now. And so you do have to sort of go on your own Mm -hmm. and, and let that go and let him do what he needs to do on his journey and, you know, take care of yourself Mm -hmm. as much as possible. I think the biggest, the biggest thing that I could see would be damaging in any kind of environment like this where you're maybe fully bought in or maybe you're, you know, one foot in, one foot out, or you're in there and you just don't want to be there, is that what really starts to happen is you play out this life under pressure and duress and shame that is inauthentically who you are. Mm. And it be, it. I almost felt like the real me and the role I was supposed to be playing got very blurred. Mm. So I, it, it almost felt like a tearing away from my inner true self. The betrayal of your true self, if you continually betray who you are as a person, it just begins to destroy your self-esteem. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As I sort of came undone, I guess you'd say, and it wasn't in the sense of being a weak person and breaking down. It was more in the sense of vocalizing you know, how uncomfortable I am and what I don't agree with and taking a stand for what I want my life to look like. I became viewed as, you know, erratic and irrational and having problems and issues. Hmm. And the church community really used that as a vehicle to really caused more division between my husband and I. Mm. It, it fed into the fact of what they were telling everybody there, you know, with God, you can do anything and you're strong and God will give you the strength to fulfill his calling on you and all of this stuff. And the fact that I was sort of speaking out against it and saying, this is not for me, they used that as yeah. fuel to say, see, she's, she's actually the weak one. Like, you know, she needs to get closer to God and depend on God more. And with God, all your problems are gone. And if I would just line up with what they expected, then God would meet all my needs. Mm. I can't tell you how many times that was said to me. You know, you just have to trust and you have to align and support your husband and and you might not like it right now, but, you know, God will meet all your needs. <sighs> and, I mean, these are the kind of tactics that they use. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that's so um, intense about spiritual abuse is there's so much overlap with other things mm-hmm. and other forms of abuse. And, I mean, a couple things. Number one... When you're, um, you're a, a religious leader and you're abusing other people using their faith or their spirituality, um, it takes the onus 
off of, you know, the, the person who's being abusive and it puts it on the person who's being abused or being harmed to say that, you know, this is your fault. You're not religious enough. You're not, you're not trying hard enough. You're not being obedient enough. And, um, it's a total flip of power and authority. Um, and, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about that. And the other thing is just, you know, in the example that you gave, there's emotional abuse, there is abuse around your spiritual views, um, there's, you know, gender privilege and misogyny around, you know, women um, shouldn't be voicing such big opinions, <laughs> so to speak, yeah. right? You, you're, you're a woman you're supposed to be submissive, you're supposed to be following your husband, you're being defiant, you're not being a good, you know, follower of God or follower of the church. Um, and so there's so many layers to it. It's just, it's just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I'm looking at, um, there is a power and control wheel and this is something that I shared in my episode on understanding domestic violence. And there is actually a power and control wheel for spiritual abuse as well. And I'm wondering if you can give a couple of examples of things that fit into some of these categories. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> using isolation, that's, that's a big one. Um, you know, I think there was a lot of situations where as we went along in over the years in the church um many couples you could you could always tend to see that often one one partner was completely bought in and one partner had red flags mm. and it, it was a repetitive pattern of people who would come and go from the church and that element of isolation where they would get you separated from your spouse um, was just huge. Mm. Um, you know, male privilege, I mean, you could go on and on and on with that. Um, one, I don't know which category it would fit in here, but there was this element of, you know, hearing from God. Mm. And that became, I've, over and over and over, a tactic, whether they knew it or not, but in terms of having a belief that somebody's perceived ability to hear directly from God trumped anybody else's sort of desires or feelings or goals um, so, you know, if there was a disagreement or a decision to be made and you were told to go pray about it, if one of the, if one of the partner, partners heard from God, right? how could you dispute that? That's so confusing though, because like if someone is already abusing their position of power, they could just make shit up at any given time to fit the narrative. For sure. To get what they want out of it. Absolutely. And that's, 
that that's it, I guess. That's that's how it, it works. But they, but you know, I mean, a lot of people really convince themselves that they had heard from God, and mm-hmm. I'm in an actual fact. You know, that was certainly the case in some of the decisions that were made in our household. Yeah. And. <clears throat> yeah, because people can have a real. Um, experience like that where they feel God is um, calling them or giving them a sign or or directing them trying to guide them to something Um, but you're really this is how people play off of your faith Mm -hmm. because it's faith it's not fact and it's not always research and science and what we know and so it is just so confusing to mm-hmm. try and grapple with that. I mean, the element of faith or, you know, believing that something is the right path for you in and of itself is not a bad thing. However, when you use somebody's idea or perceived ability to hear from God like what does that even mean Mm -hmm. you know there was no there was no talking about what that means it was just a phrase a rhetoric that was thrown around yeah you know I heard from God or God told me this and when you use that to negate a healthy equal communicative relationship with your partner there's going to be a problem Mm. you know you can't so say somebody did hear from God you don't just take that as the final word people have real um, feelings and goals and desires out of life and the you know in that in that element of isolation in that wheel you know they take all of the partnership out of your relationship Hmm. and this is a way that you know they can break people down into you know saying everything you everything you do has to be for God yeah and I'm not saying that's not right there are many people who have very balanced healthy faith that do believe what they do is for God for sure but they are also educated and mindful of equality and communication and you know what that actually looks like for them is different than what was taking place in this environment Mm. yeah yeah absolutely well I'm so excited to hear how this continues Mm -hmm. to you know build up over time and you know how you were able to finally get to where you are today. Absolutely. Okay, so that is the first part of Jen's story. And hopefully you were able to make some connections between what was talked about at the beginning of the episode and Jen's story that she shared. So, so far we've heard a little bit about the grooming process that took place Um You know, Jen was a teenager when she first joined and, 
you know, there were real positive things and there were real benefits and reasons that she was drawn to this church in particular. And once her partner uh, began to get more heavily involved, it continued drawing her in to a point that um, she really wanted to escape. So in the next episode, you're going to hear more about how things really amped up for them and how they were eventually able to exit that situation, as well as, you know, where are they today? And how has that experience sort of um, shaped her own belief system and how she was able to really heal? So stay tuned for the next part of Surviving and Thriving After Spiritual Abuse. I'm your host, Abby, and thanks again for joining me on Unlearn Now Learn.